0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Mapping the Therapeutic Odyssey in Multiple Myeloma, Interprofessional Guidance on Evidence-Based Treatment Selection and Sequencing. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash mzj860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, and welcome to Mapping the Therapeutic Odyssey in Multiple Myeloma, Interprofessional Guidance on Evidence-Based Treatment Selection and Sequencing. I'm Dr. Nina Shah from the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm pleased to welcome my nurse colleague from UCSF, Katerina Ganapathy, and one of our community-based partners, Dr. Mandy Robertson, to our discussion. Today, we're going to explore the team-based management of multiple myeloma, but focus our attention on how several new developments in medical care, including the use of novel antibodies in CAR-T therapy, have changed the therapeutic journey for patients, as well as the hematology oncology team. During this program, we'll be periodically sharing several resources that can inform treatment selection and safety management, so please take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. All right, let's begin. So as we all know, there's been a lot of recent progress in multiple myeloma, which include the first approvals of BCMA CAR T-cell therapy in myeloma and additional antibody indications. So if you can see here before 2020, we did have some approval for daratumumab um, as well as elotuzumab, which are both monoclonal antibodies. And then we also eventually had isatuximab approved as an anti-CD38 antibody. Interestingly, daratumumab and isatuximab, which are anti-CD38 antibodies, um, have become part of the mainstay of myeloma treatment. But now we have for daratumumab, subcutaneous formulation approved, uh, which has actually really helped our patients as far as the time that they spend in the chair. As I mentioned, isatuximab was ultimately approved in combination for pomalidomide and dexamethasone um, in patients with at least two prior lines of therapy, and thereafter approved with carfilzomib and dexamethasone in patients with one to three prior lines of therapy. The CD38 antibodies have revolutionized multiple myeloma, but it's also been exciting to see where BCMA therapy has, has come. And you can see that bilantamab has now been approved, and that was approved in 2020, for patients with at least four prior therapies, not necessarily lines, but therapies, including an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, PI, and IMID. This is an antibody drug conjugate, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later in the program. Last year in 2021, we had our first BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy approved. That's called Idacel. And then this past year, we just, or this past month, we just had Siltacel approved for patients with at least four prior lines of therapy. That's also BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy. Both of the CAR T-cell therapies are approved for patients with at least four prior lines. But unfortunately, despite this progress with these newer therapeutics, there are still challenges that remain in delivering effective treatment to to myeloma patients. So the first is that there's therapeutic attrition rates in current practice patterns. And if you look at patients who are not eligible for autologous stem cell transplant, it turns out that 57%, so actually more than half, only receive one line of therapy. That means they don't even get access to some of these things that we were just talking about. And for patients that do go to transplant, only a fifth of them receive or sorry, a fifth of them receive only one line of therapy. Again, saying that they only got their transplant or maintenance, they didn't get anything else. And so there are patients that are not getting access to these, these new therapies, which are also very effective. Now, this case is even worse for patients with triple class refractory myeloma. We know that they have poor survival, increased hospitalizations, decreased quality of life, and 35% of triple-class refractory patients don't get any therapy after that, meaning those patients who are refractory to IMIDS, PIs, and CD38 antibody don't have other options or aren't uh, offered other options. So we really want to change that and deliver more optimal care. So there are team approaches to employing novel therapeutics, novel triplets and quadruplets in newly diagnosed myeloma, and we want to talk a little bit about that with the case discussion. This is Elena who presents with symptomatic multiple myeloma. She's 60 years old, has RISs two disease, and that's because the LDH is greater than upper limit of normal. But her cytogenetics or fish are standard risk with the translocation eleven fourteen beta two is within normal limits at two point eight. She's fairly healthy with well controlled hypertension normal renal function and and is deemed transplant eligible after initial assessment. So let's talk about the guidelines and evidence before we discuss the next steps. So you can see here when we talk about high-risk cytogenetics or high-risk FISH, uh, they are influential in, in, in telling us what the prognosis is for these patients. And there is a team workflow for conveying these results to patients. Um, just to look at this slide, the standard risk patients would be those that have maybe trisomies or translocation 1114, as our patient did, or 614. And then the high risk, which is about a quarter of myeloma patients, have these translocations that you've heard about that are generally high risk or deemed to be um, poor risk, that they They might have proliferative status, and these definitely need additional attention because we know the patient's at greater risk for progression. So I want to bring in Katerina here to talk about how we may have a team workflow for conveying these results to patients. So Katerina, do you ever get messages from patients saying perhaps that they've noticed that their bone marrow has a suggestion of high risk, and then what do you do then?
2: Thank you, Nina. I would definitely forward that message to the provider because I feel that as a nurse, it's not my place to, uh, to have this discussion. It might be my place to reiterate what you already discussed with the patient.
1: Yeah, and I think that's interesting that a lot of times patients get reports, right? They're, they have access to their reports, and they will see this first, and the first person who gets messages will be you, right? So, um, And you know these basic cytogenetic changes, but of course you're not necessarily going to say you're going to get X treatment or Y treatment. And so it ends up being a team approach where you can at least say, we understand that you've Sent this message and, and we know it's important. And I would like to make sure you have a discussion with the provider. So I think that does a, at least answer the patient's immediate fear right then that somebody is on top of it. Don't you think?
2: Yes, absolutely. And always acknowledging a message goes a long way and allows the patient to wait a little bit rather than going back to Dr. Google.
1: Yes, exactly right. <laughs> we want to avoid that. Great, great discussion. So in thinking about this, We have NCCN guidelines for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma treatment, and these have actually already been updated. So we have triplets and quadruplets that are recommended for options for transplant candidates. Now, you can see primary therapy for these transplant candidates. The preferred therapy is bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone, um, which is also known as VRD. This triplet is what would be upfront and chosen uh, and preferred, but we have other therapies that may be also uh, recommended, including carfilzomib len-dex, Dara bortezomib len-dex, which is a quad quadruplet therapy, or IXA len-dex. So I want to talk a little bit about quadruplet therapy because that is coming more on the horizon, and that is based, I think, in the United States, mostly on this randomized phase two study, the GRIFFIN study. I want to take you through the design a little bit so you understand how these patients came through the study. These are newly diagnosed transplant-eligible multiple myeloma patients who are randomized to either receive daratumumab in combination with bortezomib-lend-dex versus bortezomib-lend-dex without daratumumab. All patients got four cycles induction, transplant Two cycles of consolidation, and then another two years of maintenance therapy. If the patient was in the daratumumab arm, that's the purple arm, they stayed throughout these entire 32 cycles of therapy. And in the standard arm, the control arm, those patients stayed without daratumumab the entire time. I want to point out that this is a randomized phase two with the primary endpoint of a stringent CR rate at the end of consolidation. So that's right before that last two sets of boxes there, or last set of boxes there. So it's not powered for progression-free survival necessarily, but instead is powered to see if there's an increase in the stringent CR rate. Here you can see the results of the GRIFFIN trial and looking at that primary endpoint. So if we're looking at stringent CR, uh, which is there in the boxes, you can see that the purple in that third column on each of these, so the purple in the third column and the orange in the third column on the right, that 42 plus 9 is definitely better than the 32 plus 10, meaning most patients... More patients in the darA RVD arm or darA bortezomib len dex arm achieved astringent CR significantly more than those in the bortezomib len dex arm. So the 42% versus 32%, which was statistically significant. Now that's really important because we want to make sure that our patients are going to have a better response. But we also know that they also got extensive maintenance in this particular study. Here you can see not only the responses we've seen on the previous slide, but the MRD responses. So robust MRD responses and PF outcome, PFS outcomes were reported this past year. And what you can see there for MRD negativity, either at six months or at 12 months, meaning sustained MRD negativity was significantly higher in the quadruplet group versus the triplet group. And this is something that we've been looking at as a predictor of how patients will do eventually. Similarly, the progression-free survival curves, which are seen on the right-hand side, show that there is a splitting of these curves, and really, you can see that split more significantly as you get to the 36-month mark. And even though the hazard ratio is 0.46, the confidence interval just starts to cross over one at the 1.01. So we can't count this as statistically significant. And remember, the study was not powered to look for this difference. But I think with longer follow-up, these curves will separate further. And I want to point out again, this this separation happens at that 36-month mark. So it does suggest that maybe there is some effect of that maintenance deratumumab, going on for longer in those last two years. There is an ongoing phase three Perseus study that is actually going to look at this with the true statistics of power of a phase three randomized control trial, looking at PFS as an endpoint to really understand quadruplet versus triplet therapy in the transplant eligible patients. I think it's always nice to look at the subgroup analyses. Virtually every group benefits, except we see here that the high-risk patients don't necessarily benefit from having quad therapy. And I think that's really hard to study in this patient population because you have lower numbers of patients. And it's hard for doctors, really, to randomize their patients to RBD if they think that the patients have high-risk disease. They may not want to enroll them on this trial. So it's hard to make much of the high-risk data here, but just that the subgroup analysis did not show any difference. Now, if we want to look at the effect of maintenance therapy, we actually can look at the Cassiopeia study. Now, this study was conducted in Europe, so it randomized patients to get quadruple therapy, but with thalidomide. So daratumumab, bortezomib, thalidomide, dex versus bortezomib, thalidomide, dex, newly diagnosed transplant eligible patients patients got four cycles, transplant, then consolidation. And then there was a second randomization to daratumumab monotherapy every eight weeks versus observation. Now, we always talk about how we would never do this right now because we know now that maintenance does improve overall survival. But at the time that the study was conducted, we did not have this data. So it did did complete enrollment. So what happened here? Remember, there's two randomizations. I want to point out that the first randomization, it did show the benefit of the quad therapy for PFS. But the second randomization, Showed the benefit for daratumumab maintenance therapy over observation. But what was really surprising is that when you look at the data and you divide those four groups those are the people that got uh, uh, VTD and then DARA for maintenance, or DARA VTD and then DARA all the way through, or DARA VTD and then observation those three groups that got daratumumab at any time actually had a very similar PFS, as you can see on the right hand curve, a right hand plot with essentially superimposable PFS curves the people who did not do well were the people who never got daratumumab, suggesting for some that perhaps it doesn't matter that you get daratumumab throughout all of the maintenance cycles, but that you get it all at some point. And I think this is going to be a debate that will go on when and for how long should we give daratumumab therapy. Um, And I think also thinking about the GRIFFIN trial, trying to understand how to apply those results as far as the maintenance goes. So we go back to our case. Elena is a 60-year-old woman with RISS2 myeloma, transplant eligible. Dara btd is recommended. So how should the team counsel Elena on the next steps and what to expect from treatment? So, Katerina, I want to turn it over to you about our team discussion and the role of the nurse professional.
2: So the role of the nurse in Elena's case would be to educate her more acutely on chemo uh, treatment. Um, in addition to counselling her on side effects and who to contact for what, uh, dealing with dosing schedule, I would also focus on the following. Uh, since daratumumab is a CD38 antibody that comes with an observation period after the first dose, I would definitely focus on that so that people don't think that they're, they get the medication, then they're done. It includes a three-hour observation period after subcutaneous injection and a six-hour observation period after the intravenous dose. Uh, The next medication is lenalidomide, also known as Revlimid, and that carries the mandatory REMS program. REMS stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. That is mandatory in this case because of the risk for birth defects. Um, I would then also focus on uh, the high risk for diarrhea, both in uh, botazimib and um, and revlimid lenalidomide, just because it is quite significant. Um, It is important that patients are on antiviral prophylaxis in general, because they're on treatment and thus immunocompromised, but definitely more so if they're on proteasome inhibitors and or a CD38 antibody. Most medications do carry a slight risk or moderate risk of uh, GI toxicities. It is important to send patients home with antiemetics for that reason and to counsel them on when to take these and again what to reach out for. If patients experience diarrhea Uh, which can be caused both by botazimib and or lenalidomide, it is important to rule out infectious causes before allowing them to take antidiarrheal medications. If lenalidomide is thought to be the cause and there is no infectious uh, cause found, it would make sense to actually start with cholestyramine rather than Imodium or Lamotil.
1: No, I was going to say that's actually really helpful to think about with lenalidomide because uh, that is one of the top complaints that we get about that drug.
2: Yes. And the beauty about cholestyramine is that it doesn't carry such a high risk of constipation like Lamotil and Imodium. Um, patients on IMIT therapy, specifically lenalidomide and pomalidomide, also need to have thromboprophylaxis at the very basic uh, baby aspirin, but if there is an associated or if there is an elevated risk for uh, thromboprophylaxis, uh, th- uh, thrombosis, uh, it makes sense to increase the aspirin to a full strength unless they're already on an anticoagulant like uh, Eloquis or Zavalto.
1: Yeah, this is all really helpful and and very important points, almost as important as writing the chemotherapy itself, because of course, you need to make sure that uh, you're able to tell them what they're going to expect. What do you talk about as far as infection and risk of infection? So I will tell them that they're
2: immunocompromised for two reasons. One is because of the disease and the other one because of treatment. Uh, it is absolutely important that they do reach out to us for anything that is a change of their baseline. It is important that they let us know and that we can make these decisions together on whether the, something needs to be monitored or acted up on uh, rather than assuming that there's nothing that needs to be done or they want to be good patients and wait for the next appointment to share news. I would also talk about the potential for the need for immunoglobulins uh, if the IgG level drops to below 400 or patients have a repeat history of an infection in the case of hypogammaglobulinemia. And if there is an infection, meaning if patients have a fever, if they have any other signs or symptoms of an infection like a rash, then to reach out so that we can aggressively manage the infection. Uh, one more note on daratumumab, it is important to note that these patients carry uh, an increased risk of hepatitis B reactivation, so it is important to screen for hepatitis B core antibody and surface antigen prior to initiating therapy and to consider additional antivirals like entecavir if that screen comes back positive. Daratumumab um, is associated with uh, antibody screens. Uh, So it is important to do a type and screen prior to initiating therapy and to let the blood bank know because these uh, screens are very time consuming. And if patients do require red blood cells to let the blood bank know that this is a patient on daratumumab, even if it is in an outside facility. Daratumumab um, in IgG kappa myeloma patients has the potential to To show up as an IgG kappa band, there is a specific test that can be done if there is a question about whether it is caused by multiple myeloma or the daratumumab, and that is called the daratumumab-specific immunofixation, which might be ordered later throughout treatment.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful because sometimes patients will say, well, I think my light chains are normal, but my M protein is still positive, and it might end up being that daratumumab, which is actually causing it. So really important point there. Also a super important point about the blood bank because, of course, uh, you can have daratumumab stuck to the CD38. So that might show up as a false positive when you're looking for type and screen and and cause all sorts of problems. So we try to let the blood bank know in advance, as Katarina said. So all of these are really important factors. And we go back to our case presentation, Elena, um, who was deemed transplant eligible, and I want to talk about if she had presented to a community clinic. So, how would the treatment decisions be made, and what is the role of the community and academic partnership? Um, I kind of t- want to talk about and bring Mandy in here. And in a community practice, what would you have done? Would she receive a triplet or quadruplet, or uh, or are there any patients that you would even think of a doublet?
3: You know, generally, we're still using triplets in the community practice, and. I would say most of us community oncologists would reach for lenalidomide, bortezomib dex as our first line treatment. Um, I think we're fairly comfortable with it over the years, which helps. We know the side effect profile, our staff and nursing support know the side effect profile, but we're also getting excited about the daratumumab quadruplet. And I know that I've reached out multiple times to you and other academic physicians asking, is it time yet? (laughs) Do we add that daratumumab yet? And most of the time, I've been I've been told, you know, let's hold off till we have that that date on the Griffin t- trial. So I think most of us are still holding off on that and waiting for the green light to start adding it.
1: Yeah. And I think we are also in an evolutionary point in the academic world also because we have questions about, you know, do we wait for the PFS to be solid? Do we wait for Perseus? And what about the maintenance? So all of these are in question and it wouldn't be wrong to do any of these choices, which is thankfully that they're on the NCCN guidelines that helps us to make some choices for the, for the patient. And what do you think about the nature of the academic community partnership for this type of patient, standard risk, newly diagnosed myeloma? How do you see the role of the two physicians uh, in these situations?
3: So I would say from a community standpoint, we look for guidance of new updated therapies, uh, the role of the quadruplet versus the triplet therapy, um, the role of transplant and where that will come into play, the introduction for those transplant eligible patients, they want to know who their team is. So introducing the academic uh, physician early who will be doing and assisting with the transplant is extremely important so they have that connection and they get their questions answered. You know, transplants can be very disruptive for patients in their, their homes. Um, they often have to travel for that, be away from home, and understanding how they can prepare themselves and their family is, is a very important part of the relationship.
1: Yeah, that's a huge, huge part of it. And it's really great to have good communication. And I, I really appreciate all the communication I have with the various docs all around my area because we do need to work on that aspect of managing expectations and trying to prepare the patient um, so that there are no surprises. Now, I want to talk to you about what if the patient had presented with high risk myeloma? Does that change the partnership with the academic colleagues? Is there more frequent conversation, less frequent? Do you, you know, do you send them all for all treatment there? What, what happens?
3: You know, in my mind, it doesn't change what I'm doing right now up front. I would like to add the daratumumab to those high-risk patients, but I am I have not started doing that yet. I'm, I often call about trials. I'm looking at our local areas. Are there any first-line trials we should be considering for those patients? I worry about those patients a little bit more on whether they will respond well, um, but I don't really change our upfront treatment.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think if we're... If we see them and we know them, sometimes we can change. Like they might be might be eligible for an upfront immunotherapy trial, for example. So it's great to have that initial consultation upfront, even if it might not change what will happen in the community. But at least we would be potentially offering them something if it was available. So it's it's really great to have all that communication. So we want to talk about our next discussion, which is Mark, who's not a transplant eligible patient. He's 73, has standard risk disease, 50% plasma cells, but does have diabetes with a significant amount of neuropathy, history of CHF, and he's deemed not a transplant eligible after initial assessment. So let's talk about the guidelines for non-transplant eligible patients. You can see here the NCCN guidelines. You can use Bortezomib Lendex, but of course, there's also now darolendex Other recommended options, including Carfilzomib index, XL index, uh, a quad, which is darabortesemib melphalan, prednisone, VMP, and darasibortesemib dex. So let's talk about this a little bit, uh, because I think one of the most uh, the trials that's made a lot of impact in the past couple of years has been the Maya trial, which looks at transplant ineligible patients who were randomized to receive daratumumab lenalidomide dex versus lenalidomide dex, essentially indefinitely until intolerance or progression. And what you can see here is that the daratumumab progression free survival or the DRD triplet PFS is Significantly improved, and the amount that it is is all there at five years, maybe more than five years, which is significantly better than the 34.4 months of the doublet. Moreover, on the right hand side, you can see that the overall survival is also improved for these patients getting triplet therapy versus doublet therapy, and that is significantly so. And that was data that's recently presented over the past year. And I think because of this, we have a lot of us have, have moved to DARA RD for our transplant ineligible patients. And if you think about it in the U.S., although this study was conducted in Europe, in the U.S., a lot of these transplant-eligible patients might be older. Um, and so it's it's like you want to give them something where they're not going to have to worry about myeloma as a primary cause of death. And this trial looks, or this data looks very compelling. I will say there are some dose reductions that we might do in the real world, like the dexamethasone or the lenalidomide, because remember, this was an indefinite trial, not a maintenance trial. Uh, so it was indefinite treatment. But it does give us some guidance on what that, th- that triple therapy is going to be better probably than doublet therapy. So let's go back to Mark, who's deemed not transplant eligible. So given this patient's comorbidities, what is the optimal choice, DRD, VRD, KRD? And if you assume, as we've been talking about, that let's say DRD is the choice, how can the team address practical aspects of therapy in this setting? And is it even different from patients who are transplant eligible? So I want to turn it back over to Katarina to talk about antibodies and non-transplant eligible myeloma and the ro- role of nurse professionals, talking about uh, various ways that daratumumab can be given and what they may expect. Thank you. So again, it's not our role to lead these discussions,
2: but it's our role to support and educate and triage. In this case, because DRD seems to be a good choice, I would definitely educate the patient on the potential for subcutaneous versus intravenous daratumumab. Subcutaneous Dara is much more convenient for most people because of the um, the time spent in the infusion center, three, uh, five minutes plus an hour for labs versus six hours. Uh, and uh, so that most people will like that much better. Uh, I did mention this earlier that there is a three-hour observation period associated with the first dose versus a six-hour observation period with the IV version with the first dose. If patients tolerate it well, and that is generally the case, there is no need for observation periods afterwards with subsequent doses It is important to note that cytopenias are more common when CD38 antibodies are used in combination with imits versus uh, proteasome inhibitors. Um, Patients need to be counseled on thromboprophylaxis, again, baby aspirin at the very minimum or full-strength aspirin, unless they're already on something else, and then regular anti-infective prophylaxis, which may vary. But at the basic level, should be acyclovir or acyclovir, possibly bactrim, and in rare cases, maybe an antifungal that wouldn't be standard but would be escalated. Again, the uh, potential need for immunoglobulin uh, if the IgG level is less than 400. And the need to communicate, keep lines open and not try to be a good patient and not let us know, but really reach out aggressively for any change in baseline. I, as a nurse, certainly do tell patients to not not try to remember everything we talked about, but just to know what's normal for them and reach out for everything, even if it seems insignificant, that is not normal, so that we can decide together.
1: Uh, yeah, I want to think about. We are talking about darArd for for potential of this patient, but there are times that we might consider other uh, triplets for these patients. And so, how do you um, manage to get, telling the patients? Okay, you're getting RVD, KRD, IRD. You do a lot of the chemo teaching, for example. So, what would happen if we had chosen carfilzomib? Although this person has CHF, so I would not have done that. That's a good idea. Yeah. So, what would you have done in that situation? I would, if you chose
2: carfilzomib for this patient, I certainly would ask you if you are sure. And if you are sure, then would make sure that an echo is scheduled at baseline. Sometimes we would add an EKG depending on the patient, but um, it would definitely include a little more Follow up on my side proactively rather than reactively, meaning I wouldn't, I would actually make the phone calls rather than trust that the patient will reach out to me if there are any signs of cardiotoxicity just because he's already so frail. That's one thing about cafilzumib. If it is a very active patient, we do have a lot of those who like independence, they don't care to spend that much time with us. Uh, then IRD might be a good option. So you and I might have this discussion before you bring it up to the patient. Because again, it's not my place to tell him, hey, have you talked to Dr. Shah about IRD?
1: But that's a good point because you and I would know the patient, right? So different different options would be for different patients, which are very individualized. And that's kind of the fun and the beauty of myeloma, that you don't have to pick the same thing. One size does not fit all. So it's a really great discussion. Now, I want to talk about the principles of myeloma management in the community context for the transplant ineligible patient. So for a patient like this, this mark transplant ineligible, does RVD remain a standard or are there other options that you prefer or are considered? So Mandy, what do you think? Yeah,
3: I think we do exactly what you've discussed here. um, Most of the time, we're looking at comorbidities, and we are choosing therapy based on comorbidities. Um, We have a lot of patients that have neuropathy, heart failure, um, uncontrolled hypertension. uh, Compliance is always a concern that we think about. So we're really looking at those comorbidities and risk factors and choosing therapies based on that. I would say if they do not have neuropathy, I still think that RVD is a good option up upfront. Um, but I do have a number of patients I have started on DRD mostly because of neuropathy, baseline neuropathy, and I don't want to worsen it.
1: Yeah. That's a really important point. It's sort of what they bring to this, uh, like we talked about, this this gentleman had uh, diabetes and, and possible neuropathy. Um, it, It can change. It's not so much what you think is better from a myeloma perspective, but what you think is better from a patient perspective. And um, and to that end, have you ever considered just doing doublets for older non-transplant eligible patients? Does that ever happen in your practice?
3: Usually, I try to start with a triplet unless it's somebody very elderly. I have some ninety-year-olds that I have that I treat with doublets. (laughs) Um, But uh, I usually try to start with a triplet, and if they do not tolerate one of the treatments then we switch to a doublet. And um, one of the things I didn't mention is within the community, we find travel to be another big consideration. So if we're going to use corfilzomib and they're having to come weekly for IV therapies, that becomes challenging. For bortezomib, if they're on weekly therapy, it can sometimes become challenging. Whereas daratumumab, you can also uh, often get to that every other week and then once a month. And when you talk to patients about that, they find that to be a little bit easier of a schedule to work with.
1: Yeah, that's a huge point because that is a part of the patient's experience is how much they have to, how frequently they have to come to you. And so would you say the nature of the academic and community partnership for this type of patient, the non-transplant eligible patient might be a little bit older, is different or, or similar as the newly diagnosed myeloma, or is there a little bit less interaction? What would you say?
3: It is different. A lot of these patients can't travel um, or are unwilling to travel. And so I think it's more I look to you for guidance on these patients and make sure that I'm not missing something new in the uh, data that I should be considering,
1: right, but then they don't necessarily have to come to a center uh, for for a consultation. Is that what you're saying?
3: That's correct
1: right yeah, and I think this is evolving plus now with video visits' a little bit different, but yeah it, it's 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 good to have a little a connection between us and you um, both in, in both directions for me also. Um, So in discussing this newly diagnosed um, patient population, we want to talk about maintenance options. So there are two maintenance options that you can think about. So Elena, who is a 60-year-old woman with standard risk myeloma, she got Dara RVD induction, transplant, and what we do for her for maintenance versus Mark, who's a 73-year-old gentleman, not transplant eligible, got DRD. So what's an appropriate maintenance option? So lenalidomide remains a category one maintenance option. That's an NCCN guideline. But as I pointed out before, the Griffin data did have our maintenance um, as, as its uh, maintenance arm. And, and that's been something a little bit hard for us to all uh, embrace because it's a total 32 cycles of daratumumab. But as I pointed out, those curves did start separating at the 24 and 36 months. So maybe there is something to that. Um, it's, it's hard for patients to go through all this and then say, what? I need to get more therapy. And, and so I wanted to, to ask Katerina, how do you educate patients on maintenance if they ask you, you, know, what do I do now? I just had the transplant. I need to get back on LEN. What do you what do? You do?
2: Well, first of all, I do listen. I acknowledge that they thought that this was a one deal, right? And um, that's why I think that it is actually important to discuss maintenance therapy before transplant so that they don't go through this ordeal and then get thrown another curveball. Um, My way to educate patients is in writing first and follow up with a phone call later so that they have had time to let information sink in to potentially collect questions Um, before they talk to me, so that it is a little bit more successful. Um, Maintenance options for me as a nurse mean that I need to make sure that they do get their labs done in time, that uh, ideally that we should be once, uh, if they've been on maintenance therapy for a while, maybe every three months, um, and that they keep communication open for any questions. A lot of people on maintenance therapy, sta- uh, especially status post-transplant, will look for some, for some loopholes. They would like to live life a little bit. They want to travel. And then their lifestyle would definitely play a role in how we adjust maintenance to fit their lifestyle.
1: Yeah, that is a really important point. Again, we try to do these treatments so people can go back to life, not just be a patient. So that's a really important point. And I think having oral therapy for that is helpful. And I think, you know, in the case of Mark, we would, as I pointed out, that was endless DRD in the in the trial. But I think we all kind of move the doses down a little bit, decrease the lenalidomide, decrease the DEX, maybe sometimes take off the DEX. Uh, Monthly subcutaneous daratumab, I think, is fairly well tolerated, and we haven't had a problem so far. The data is just here, which means that clinical implementation is going to Take another five years in the real world, so we shall see. But thinking about high-risk patients, I so they just want to make a point here that for high-risk patients, probably the most amount of data we have is the FORTE trial, which did have a randomization uh, for patients to get KR maintenance or doublet carfilzomib lenalidomide maintenance versus lenalidomide single-agent maintenance. And in their subgroup analysis, well, first of all, for all patients, it did seem that there was an improvement in PFS for patients who got two-drug versus single-drug maintenance. And in the subgroup analysis, patients with one or more than one high-risk feature, so high-risk or double-hit, all of those patients seem to also benefit from getting two drugs versus one. And that's probably the most guidance that we can say as far as what to do with high-risk patients. In general, I think that high-risk patients need more therapy and for longer. Um, And and so I generally do try to give them double therapy uh, for maintenance therapy, whether it's bortezomiblen or, or carfilzomiblen, either could be an option. Now we want to talk about planning for the journey of optimal team management for relapse refractory multiple myeloma and the role of innovative therapeutics. So now we have a case of a patient, Thomas, who was diagnosed when he was 62, got RBD transplant, actually was MRD positive after the transplant, got lenalidomide maintenance, and after three and a half years um, progressed. Now he's CD38 antibody naive, got RBD up front, and he's relapsing after one to three prior lines. So is he candidate for CD38 antibody triplet? Many things have to be considered for these patients, what the time of relapse is, what they did previously, how aggressive is the relapse? Is it just biochemical or is there something on the PET scan? And then their performance status and comorbidities, how they tolerated therapy before and what kind of support they have. We know that it's hard for patients to come to therapy twice a week, for example. Think about comorbidities, frailty, inconvenience as well as the aggressiveness of the disease, including fish and cytogenetics, which can help you to decide what you should do for your patients. Now, for antibody triplets in relapse refractory multiple myeloma, we have several pieces of evidence to help us. The two antibodies that are talked about as far as CD38 antibodies are daratumumab and isatuximab. Daratumumab can be used in combination with portezomib dex, carfilzomib dex, lenalidomide dex, and actually Palm dex, as we'll see here. And the two trials that have recently been reported with very nice data, CANDOR, showed an improvement of Darakade, Daracarfilzomib dex, over carfilzomib dex of 28.6 months. So that's quite a bit of PFS versus 15 months. Apollo, which was subcutaneous daratumumab and pomalidomide dex also showed an improvement, 12.4 versus 6.9 months. Both of these are options, as you would think about, for patients in the one to three prior lines of therapy. If you think about isatuximab, which is another CD38 antibody, there's also been data recently showing the improvement with triplet therapy here. In the Icaria trial, Isatuximab and pomdex outperformed Palmdex, 11.5 versus 6.4 months. Now, this was in patients with at least two prior lines of therapy, just to sort of not split hairs, but to know where the trial or how it was conducted. And then the Akema study, esotuximab carfilzomib dex versus carfilzomib dex, that PFS has not even been reached yet. We're looking forward to getting that data, and uh, but it's significantly higher than the control, which was 19 months. The good news is we're getting better data. Now, if you don't want to use a CD38 antibody, you can consider potentially a drug like selenexor, where in the Boston trial, addition of selenexor to bortezomib dexamethasone yielded an improvement in progression-free survival for patients who had received at least one prior line of therapy, one to three prior lines. And you can see here a nice improvement of the three drug regimen over the two drug regimen. And I also want to point out, this was actually less bortezomib. This is weekly bortezomib for the three drug regimen and twice weekly bortezomib for the control arm. So this really did show a nice improvement of about 14 months versus nine and a half months. And interestingly, if patients actually had prior experience with a proteasome inhibitor, those patients also did benefit, although just a hair below statistical significance. So people who had gotten a prior PI, which is basically all of our patients, right? A lot of them get bortezomib up front. Those patients did better 11.4 11.7 11.7 months versus 9.4 months. So it's not like we're losing out by having patients have be re-exposed to PIs. And I think this is very important because those are our patients, right? The people that get bortezomib up front and, and then aren't actually refractory to it, but they just stop getting it because they're done with induction therapy and they don't get it in maintenance. So now we go back to our case discussion. Thomas, who's a patient with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma, and because he doesn't have prior CD38, um, he does meet criteria for, for possible therapy with CD38 antibody and with a carfilzomib backbone. So there are some different dosing considerations when you think about antibody therapy, and I want to ask Katerina just to briefly talk about how we've switched from IB to sub-Q and what the differences are. So...
2: The differences in side effect profile are minimal, which is a good point for patients. For that reason, at UCSF at least, we really push subcutaneous uh, daratumumab, which patients do appreciate. It is a push over three to five minutes. The dose is the same for everybody. And like I mentioned earlier, there is a three-hour observation period with the first dose. And after that, there is none as long as patients tolerate it well. Um so IV, really, we just have to give if either a patient really likes to spend time with us, which is like none, or if there is an insurance barrier. But other than right. that, most people really do appreciate the subcutaneous version. There is a slight, um, a slightly elevated risk of a local reaction, which can easily be treated with hydrocortisone cream, uh, but it's mostly a cosmetic effect. Uh, patients on isotuximab, um, Unfortunately, there is no subcutaneous version available right now. It's being investigated, and hopefully, it'll come in the future. At this point, it is an IV medication that is uh, given weekly for four weeks, followed by every other week dosing. The infusion rate is the infusion time is approximately three to five, hour, three point five hours. So, it is much less convenient for patients. Uh, Because of the risk of hypersensitivity reactions with both of these medications, regardless of the um, administration, is uh, hypersensitivity reactions, uh, for this reason acetaminophen, benadryl, and or diphenhydramine, and a steroid are recommended in the case of isotoximab, also an H2 antagonist. I will add that adding Montelucas to the premedications 30 to 60 minutes before giving daratumumab really reduces the risk of infusion related reactions that we have seen.
1: Yeah, this is really helpful because as we've gotten more used to this drug, we're able to give it more quickly and you um, more, know more comfortable with it and, and the word gets around. So it, it's important to for us to all get more experience with this. Now, I want to talk about the early relapse setting with Mandy. How common would you see a patient like this? And if so, would what kind of triplet platform would you use in this situation? And would you use an anti-CD38 antibody?
3: Yeah, we're, we're generally following exactly what you outlined, and we use uh, a, CD38, uh, monoclo- or a CD38 antibody. Generally, we reach for daratumumab because we do use subcutaneous daratumumab, and it's preferred by most patients. Um, so that's really the path that we choose, I'd say. And we also premedicate exactly how you mentioned, and it's worked very well for our community setting.
1: And do you send these patients with early relapse, something like within 12 months of transplant, do you send them for consideration of clinical trials?
3: At this point, because of the CAR-T cells, we are sending them for clinical trials because I often wonder whether they may be a candidate for a clinical trial with CAR-T or other therapies that may be out there or other combinations. So I will often refer early if they have relapsed early. For the late relapsers, I still send for clinical trials. So yeah. uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. You know, any time is a good time for referral. At most, you know, worst case scenario, they're in the queue uh, for something that might be exciting. But, of course, considering what, what they do and don't, don't want to do as far as uh, leaving, leaving home or not. But at least a consultation even by virtual visit if it's possible. So I want to go back to the case. So what if Thomas had presented with treatment refractory myeloma? Now, look here. He's gotten his induction, transplant, maintenance, then he progressed, got Darapalm-dex, VGPR, but a year later had new progression with a new plasmacytoma, got carfilzomib-side-dex, and then seven months later progressed and got bortezomib dex and actually did not really respond, had stable disease, but then progressed, but actually is doing relatively well, has a good performance status. So the patient is triple, is the patient triple refractory? Yes. And in fact, actually might even be considered Penta refractory. So, what are the options and what is the evidence? So, any patient who is triple refractory is 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 really looking at a very high risk situation. The overall survival for triple and quad refractory patients, as per our retrospective analysis through the Mammoth study, is nine point two months. So, not very long. That's overall survival. And penta refractory is even more, which this patient was five point six months. So, this is really an unmet need. And one of the things that we're really excited about is possibly overcoming this by targeting a new protein, also known as BCMA or B-cell maturation antigen, this is a really good target for our patients and our myeloma patients because it's actually expressed on these late-stage B-cells and plasma blasts, as well as the plasma cells themselves. And what is even better about it is it's actually not expressed on very many other types of cells. So that's a perfect candidate for a target antigen because if you actually are successful in killing the target cell, it, it is less likely that you're going to have an off-target effect on a cell that you don't want to have an effect on. So lesser side effects from, from off-target BCMA uh, effectiveness. So this is a really great target. And for a while, we've been trying to figure out what would be the best way to approach this target. And we now know CAR T-cell therapy is a very effective way. I want to point your direction to what we now have as, have approved, IDA cell, which is IDA Viclu cell. This is a BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy, autologous CAR T-cell therapy, that originally showed 89 or 90% response rate in the phase one trial, which was a really impressive data piece uh, in a phase one trial. Now, this is a, um, a, a, a CAR T that's been engineered with a viral vector to have an extracellular domain, which specifically binds to BCMA on the tumor cell. And on the intracellular side of this construct, we have co-stimulatory molecules with 4-1BB as well as... CD3 Zeta, and this helps the T-cell the to do the business of being an effector cytotoxic cell against the tumor cell. Now, this incredible data with the phase one led to the phase two KARMA trial, and that looked at assessing efficacy and safety of cell in triple class exposed patients. So what happened here? So here we have the results of the Karma study, the best overall response here. Now, the primary endpoint was overall response rate, and you can see here that the overall response rate for all doses was 73%. That's the bar on the right-hand side. But there were several doses that were explored, and at the going forward recommended dose of 450 million cells, the overall response rate was around 81%, suggesting that more cells did better. Patients responded fairly quickly within one month, and they had a really nice median time to CR of 2.8 months. Now, when you look at the PFS data, you can see here that for the entire population, the PFS was 8.8 months. But again, if you look at that 450 dose, which is that blue line, you can see that the progression free survival was about a year at 12.1 months. And now we know that the overall survival of the entire population was about two years at 24.8 months. But even more so, if you break it down for patients who got three lines of therapy or or four or more lines of therapy, it's very similar. And why was this analysis done? Because the FDA label states that the patients who are going to get this as standard of care should have at least four prior lines, but the actual trial was done with three prior lines or more. So it helps us to know that even though the label is a little more strict, that these patients are still likely to benefit. Another CAR T-cell that we're very excited about, again, against BCMA, is cell, and this was just approved as well for patients with at least four lines of therapy, again, with prior exposure to PI amid and anti-CD38 therapy. Now, this is also a BCMA-directed cell therapy, but what's interesting is it actually binds two different epitopes on the BCMA protein, which may explain some differences in response as well as kinetics. Really interesting efficacy data from this trial, the CARTITUDE1 trial, which was a single arm phase 1B2 trial, looking at the efficacy of siltacel for these patients. As you can see here, unprecedented overall response rate of 98%, which is really just something you don't even see in first line data with very nice depth of response, 95% of patients achieving a VGPR or better. We don't have the median PFS yet of this data, uh, but we know that when we see the curves at the two-year follow-up, 60.5% of patients are still maintaining their response, which is very interesting because it looks like probably these patients are going to surpass the two-year mark for the median PFS, which would really be something exciting for a one-time treatment. So we're really exciting. Uh, we're excited to see how this data matures. Of course, the overall survival data is also not as mature yet. So now we want to think about our case because, of course, Thomas is possibly a candidate for CAR T-cell therapy. And is he? And if so, what's next? How can we prepare him? So as I pointed out, he has triple refractory disease and maybe penta refractory disease actually. And he has a good functional status with the performance status of one. Based on his presentation, we do think he's a candidate for CAR T-cell therapy, but what are the implications for team management? So General principles of CAR T therapy, I'm just going to go over the sort of schema. The patients get referred to a specialized center. They then go for apheresis, meaning they have a collection. It's usually just one day of their peripheral blood mononuclear cells, and then those cells are then shipped off. And there is a waiting period for about five weeks. And during that time, those patients may actually get what we call bridging therapy because their disease may be progressive. Eventually, when we know we have the cells back on site, we'll give them three days of lymphodepleting chemotherapy with cyclophosphamide and fludarabine. That can be done as an outpatient. And then two days later, the patients will get their cells. They will get premedicated with an antihistamine and acetaminophen. We try to make sure they're not getting any steroids for at least two weeks before the cells because we don't want to harm the cells. Before we infuse the cells, we always do confirm availability of tosaluzumab. Now, as I mentioned, the recommending dosing for IdaCell is in the 300 to 460 million dose range, and for Siltacell is 0.5 to 1 million cells per kilogram of body weight, and with the max dose of 1 times 10 to the 8 car positive cells in a single infusion. So these are the principles that we talk about for patients. Katerina, have you encountered patients having a lot of questions about this process, or are they just, uh, just saying, okay, I'm, I'm in, or how, how have you have, ha, how have you been communicating with patients about this since it's now FDA approved? So nobody says,
2: I'm in. Everybody comes with a lot of questions. <laughs> So in our practice, it's the nurses who are the BMT coordinators who handle the educational part for these patients uh, by means of a family conference. The family conference will definitely include the caregiver and a backup and maybe a back backup caregiver, the patient, a social worker, financial counselor, physician, nurse practitioner, pharmacist, anybody who's remotely or directly involved in the patient's care so that patients get a better idea of what is necessary It is absolutely important that they know that they need a caregiver uh, who is there 24-7 for at least 30 days. That's a minimum. It could be longer, but definitely not shorter. And they need to stay within close range of the tertiary care center where they receive their care. For us nurses, I'm a practice nurse, so for us it is uh, as important to know about the side effects and the potential risks because we are often the first point of contact when patients call with an issue. It is important that we know that they did have CAR T-cell therapy and that we triage appropriately, not necessarily with an email or a staff message, but maybe a page if somebody calls with potential neurotoxicity or other issues that could be related to CAR T-cell therapy.
1: I'm really glad you brought that up because it is important to talk about uh, what the potential toxicities are, and we have to prepare the patients for the chance that they're going to have these things. So for cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, and ICANS, which is also the name for the neurotoxicity associated with CAR T-cells, we see that these are common in these particular populations. So if we just compare siltacel and cell, for example, CRS, basically happened to all patients, almost all, 95%, and cell 84%. I will say this was grade one or two and very easily managed in general by tocilizumab and steroids. The median onset for siltacel is a little bit more variable at seven days. cell tends to happen within a first day. And if you talk about cans, which is the neurotoxicity, This tends to happen a little bit less frequently in the BCMA T-cells versus the CD19 T-cells, for example, for ALL. Um, Here we have 17% and 18% respectively for the two products. Infections do happen. There is neutropenia, and I would say that low blood counts are really common. And part of that is related to the fact that we're having a lot of inflammation in the bone marrow where the myeloma sits. And that does seem to have this sort of local effect of suppressing the blood counts for a while. And eventually some of the patients do get growth factor. Now we know that there's this phenomenon of a delayed neurotoxicity with cell, So although there was ICANS in 16.5% of patients, there's also another 12% of patients with some overlap who had this sort of motor neuron toxicity or Parkinsonian or cognitive impairment or cognitive movement impairment um, for their side effect of their CAR T-cell therapy. Now, this was something that is not known exactly why it happens. We think it may be related to tumor burden. Uh, There aren't really clear guidelines yet, although we try to see if the patient can get good tumor reduction during bridging that's something that we think about as far as decreasing the possibility for them to have delayed neurotoxicity. So we're still working that out. We don't know yet. It's something that we definitely have to inform our patients about uh, because that is one thing that is a little bit different of cell versus cell. So the question is, who should be referred for CAR T cells? And I want to bring in Mandy um, about what you think... um, you know, can all patients be considered for CAR T-cell therapy? Um, how do you talk about the toxicities and, and do you maybe refer them and talk about the toxicities first or do you let me do that? And, and for early referral, do you, how do you make sure that that happens? Um, and, and if you think that the logistics are too much for some patients, what do you think? Well, you know, for community
3: oncologists, we've been a little familiar with this from the, the large B-cell lymphoma, the lymphoma data So we have been awaiting the myeloma data and excited about it and paying attention to all of this. So we are very excited about referring patients for consideration of CAR T-cell earlier from our standpoint, potentially could be better. So that's why we also look for clinical trials. We also try to educate our patients that have had autologous transplants about the differences because they come back from their autologous transplant, they're kind of beat up, they're tired they're exhausted, they recover from that, they feel well for an extended period of time, and when you start talking to them about going back for consideration of intense therapy, they get worried. So we really encourage them to go and have communications with you and your nursing colleagues
1: about what those side effects look like. So we do reach out early. Yeah, I think that's great. And even if it's like the second line treatment, again, clinical trials can be a possibility. We have some of those clinical trials, but it kind of gets them in the mix. So we know where we're, we're tracking them a little better and the patients can hear it one time, a second time, they do their own research. We really promote patient education. Uh, and a lot of patients like to get their information from our coordinators or even on their own, but we try to sort of make sure all of that's streamlined so that both you and I are saying the same things to the patient. So I agree that referral is key and, and anytime that you can do it is great. So, in thinking about managing CRS, uh, this is one of the things we have to tell the patient. You know, when we're thinking about sending them a CAR T cell therapy referral, or if I'm the primary physician, this is likely to happen. As I pointed out, 95 and 84% of patients had this. This usually happens um, sometime after T cell therapy. And if it's early onset and grade one, then I do give to a saluzumab actually pretty frequently. Grade one uh, CRS basically means fever and nothing else. Once you have fever and any vital sign instability, you upgrade to grade two, in that case, tocilizumab is definitely indicated, and maybe even steroids. We approach CAR T-cell CRS as a very active management, You know, and different institutions do it in different ways. Uh, But we tend to be pretty aggressive. If the fever doesn't go away, that first fever after just a little bit of acetaminophen, then we will easily pull the trigger on the tocilizumab. And I'd rather treat it earlier than later because we don't want it to evolve into presser requirement or an ICU state uh, for these patients. Now, if they have grade three or four CRS, of course, then you may, of course, have to give tocilizumab and steroids, but you may end up having to give something higher, like higher dose methylprednisolone or even cytotoxic chemotherapy to really turn off those T-cells. Now, when we think about managing neurotoxicity, this is one of those things that, first of all, you have to look for it. And so in order to look for it, we have these tools, for example, the ice score. We ask these patients these questions that really focus on concentration recall and name writing or sentence writing. And you can track this twice a day with patients. And when you find something that potentially looks a little bit weird, you can consider that they may have neurotox. A lot of times we just manage this. Sometimes the caregiver is the most important person in this. That person knows the patient the best and may say, you know, something's a little bit off. Uh, We do provide intensive supportive therapy, but if things don't get better, we pull the trigger on steroids very quickly because we don't want things to progress for example, to seizures or to needing intubation, et cetera. Katerina, have any of the patients asked you about this, uh, this concept of neurotoxicity? Have they heard about it or read about it?
2: Not proactively, because I think they're counseled very aggressively by the BMT coordinators in our center. But um, what I want to say as a nurse is if somebody's status post-county cell calls in with what appears to be a benign headache, that could also be a sign of neurotoxicity,
1: Yes. That's so it true. doesn't anyway.
2: necessarily have to sound dramatic. It could be the slightest little thing. And even I mean, when somebody has a history of a migraine, I might say, well, maybe this is another migraine. But if it's county cell therapy, it better be a page to the physician so that you guys can make the decision.
1: Yes, that's really true. Headache is actually very common in these patients and, you know, something going on there. And I I definitely pay attention to it more than just a regular headache in CAR T. So that's a really good point, especially because a lot of these patients may soon be managed for some of their course as an outpatient. So I want to... Turn now to mafodotin. We talked about it briefly. This is the first BCMA-directed therapy that was ever approved. This is an antibody drug conjugate. The antibody part of it binds to BCMA on the plasma cell, and it's conjugated to MMAF, which is a toxin. Once the binding happens, this ADC is then internalized to the cell into the lysosome, and then the actual toxin is released and can kill the target plasma cell. So mafodotin is an ADC that is approved a Multiple myeloma patients with relapse disease with at least four prior treatments and exposed to at least. Uh, CD38, IMIT, and PI. I think the most important thing here is that it's an off-the-shelf agent, and it's readily available, for example, if patients can't get access to CAR T-cell therapy. So this is all based on the DREAM2 data, where patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma were treated with single-agent belantumam mafodotin. And if we just look at the patients in the 2.5 milligram per kilogram dose, you can see here that the overall response rate was 31%. So about a third of the patient's response. The median PFS was 2.8 months, but you have to look at the patients that did respond for those who did respond the duration of response was 11 months so when this therapy is effective it can be very effective i think something that you have to worry about of course is keratopathy which is a change in the cornea and here you can look at and with a with a slit lamp and see microcystic changes in the cornea and grade any grade keratopathy happened in 70% of patients but 40% had grade 3 or higher and that's really important because this is a collaborative effort and this is something that that we have really been trying to work through with our teams there is a REMS program here which are, requires that the patients must see an eye care professional every three weeks or at least once per cycle to determine that there has not been progression of keratopathy now sometimes people don't even know that they've had keratopathy it's a physical finding on a slit lamp exam and it's the job of the communication between the ocular health professional and the physician to determine whether what's seen on that exam Necessitates a pause, a hold, uh, or, a redu- or a dose reduction in in the patient's therapy. Sometimes patients have blurry vision, um, and that is also a signal. So, Katerina, uh, tell me how, how has this been managed the best, or or how do you counsel patients who are going on this medication?
2: So, once the decision is made, I'm usually the one, depending on the physician, to enroll them in the REMS program and talk about keratopathy, ocular toxicity and uh help them help them navigate the uh the schedule so ophthalmology visit first needs to happen within 21 days of the first infusion and then within 1 week of each subsequent infusion so um i definitely keep a cheat sheet and make sure that i call patients and say remember you do have your ophthalmology visit tomorrow then i will send a um an eye professional clearance form to the eye physician to the ophthalmologist or optometrist uh, to make sure that we have documentation of the exam not just by note but on a separate sheet so that's pretty much what we have to do just follow up on ophthalmology visit in in um in close proximity, uh, proximity to the to the next infusion and then remind patients to make the next appointment
1: yeah, I mean, what you're saying is sort of the, the, the provider toxicity, right? You know, there's a, there's there's a lot of logistics that we have to make sure are done, and the fact that you keep track of this with the cheat sheet is is really helpful to a doctor like me because, of course, I forget about you know who's going where and I don't know until the orders come. But there is a stopgap there because I have to fill out that rims. Um, that REMS sheet, that REMS online portal, or the patient will not have the dose released to the pharmacy. So there's a, a safety mechanism in there uh, that's there, but but it, we really do have to counsel the patients. And again, this is about information because we want the patients to know that this could happen to them. And we want to make sure that we give adequate lubricant eye drops and also make sure they're plugged in to a local eye care professional. So it's something that we're learning more and more about, uh, how to modify doses. And we hope that this will be an off-the-shelf available therapy uh, for these patients. And we know that it is. Uh, for patients who cannot necessarily get CAR-T. Uh, I want to take a few seconds now to just talk about, with Mandy, some of the newer therapies, which include the BCMA bispecific T-cell antibodies or T-cell engagers. This is sort of, as I always call it, the e-harmony of immunotherapy. It's a it's a molecule that binds both the BCMA or target antigen on the target cell, as well as CD3 on the T-cell, bringing them in close proximity. So no need to harvest T-cells. It's off the shelf. Um, it does have preliminary efficacy with both teclistamab and l which have both been shown in clinical trials, to have really nice efficacy, somewhere around 60 sometimes 80% single agent. We don't have FDA approval yet. Um, I, if you, I would want to ask Mandy, do you refer patients for a BCMA clinical trial with bispecifics, or do you feel like it's too much because of the frequency, or what do you feel about the referral here?
3: Oh, I think the biospecifics are some of the most exciting uh, therapies coming out. So I've been following these in some of the national meetings, and um, I, I talk to the patients about this exciting therapy that they may have an opportunity to get access to. And since we don't have it in the community, I try to encourage them to go and meet with academic physicians to discuss this as well as other therapies.
1: Yeah. And then we can figure out which might be best because there are going to be different ones with different dosing regimens in the future. And some might be every three weeks or extend to every four weeks. So this may be something that'll be a great partnership, I think, between academic physicians and community oncologists. So in conclusion, I just want to say that we have had a really nice burst of therapies available for patients with newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. This concludes our exploration of team-based management myeloma and some of the principles for integrating new developments into care. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thank you so much.
0: This activity is accredited by Penn State College of Medicine and Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash mzj860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Cario Farm.